Welcome everyone to our weekly NCAA social series. I'm Andy Katz. I'm pleased to be joined by Jackie McWilliams. She is the CIAA commissioner. Dr. Kenneth Chu, the Indiana State Director of Student Counseling. And Amy Wilson, the NCAA's Manag Managing Director of Inclusion. Um, to all three of you, uh, hopefully that everyone is staying safe during these unprecedented times. Um, we're going to talk about inclusion, building allies. Uh, we've obviously over the last couple of weeks felt a lot of raw emotion with what's going on, not just across the country, but across the globe. And now I think we're into that next phase, which is um, obviously there's been a lot of anger, but now what are we going to do? What, what's the next step? especially when students get back on campus in the fall. So that's what we want to address. But first, as a baseline, and I want to go around our group here. Uh, Jackie, I'm going to start with you. Right. Last month, if you can just sort of just, to, you know, in a brief way, just tell me what have you been feeling in the last month? And obviously that tipping point was the murder of George Floyd. But since then, because there's been obviously countless incidents before that, that was the tipping point. What has this last month felt like for you? Um, Andy, and, and just glad to be here today. Um, this discussion has always been important. Um, you know, I think that day really culminated emotions that I've been feeling for a long time. Um, and just, you know, you keep hearing us saying we're tired of, and sick and tired of being tired. Um, but for me, that's been a saying for a very long time. Um, you know, there's always this hope for change and opportunities to be different. And Amy and I have talked about this. I remember four years ago, we were sitting in the boardroom when the election happened and tears and just disappointed, you know, because what you want to have change, you don't see it gonna, it's not happening. And these discussions are just, they're tiring, Andy, honestly, I think you know, I'm always looking at myself, self-awareness and reflection of what I feel and what I, what I say and how I'm a part of whatever the problems are. Um, but what I have found is just in reflection is that most of us of color have navigated for years, all of our entire lives. We've been taught to act, to be, to say, to walk, to talk um, in any type of room um, in situation. And so we see the situation and some become numb. I'm not numb. I just know there needs to be work and I'm not afraid to talk about it, but I need other people not to be afraid to talk about it as well. And? Um, I would echo some of what was already said. Um, you know, when it first happened, you know, the initial response was, you know, here we go again. Um, you know, the amount of frustration, um, some underlying anger, a little bit of confusion as to, to when is this going to actually be addressed or dealt with, you know, full range of emotions. Um, and I also would say that, you know, that, that there's not really a numbness um, because, you know, even though this is something that, you know, I've seen since I was young and, and has been going on, you know, since, since my parents were young and their parents were young, um, you know, it, it's, it's a different kind of awareness. Um, and that awareness is that, you know, there, there are certain spaces that you can't go into, certain interactions that you have to be mindful of, and that if you are not, 
you put yourself and potentially your your family and the people around you at risk. And so, um, you know, th there are people who may be enraged. Was I enraged? To a certain extent. Um, you know, am I understanding of it? No, not supposed to be. You know, um, but I will say that that you know the, the level of frustration on one hand, you know, kind of pulled me back, but on another hand, the level of excitement, seeing people actually taking it seriously, you know, it, it's it's it was an, it was a kind of a, a swing of emotions that I didn't anticipate, <laughs> but the fact that young people in society in general have finally gotten to the point where they're where they're trying to do something about it for me was was you know very impactful what about for you amy yeah it's it's been a, a tough six weeks it's been traumatizing moments of despair and anger um i think about my black friends my black and brown friends people i care about deeply um people i work with and it's been a lot of listening and offering support and um, I get hopeful when I see large numbers of the white community coming out and holding signs and protesting and stepping up and speaking out. But I also wanna know that those same people are gonna be there in three months and six months and 12 months and down the road. Um, my colleague, Naya Blair Hackworth, who leads our office on issues for race and ethnicity, um, kind of said something for our team that's, that's helped us moving forward is that George Floyd and the many others who have died in the recent weeks um, these can't just be moments that we're going to focus on. And remember, this must be a movement. So through allyship and communication, listening, just trying to really challenge others around me to say, how do we keep moving forward? Um, it, it's not enough just to rely on the emotions. Um, those emotions need to spur action. So um, I just trying to give a lot of care to those in my life that I know are directly impacted by this. And it also brings up a lot too about the intersection of identities and ways different communities are impacted by this. So. Um, hopeful that that people raising their voices across the country we're going to see change but we need to see it in in laws and policies in in our our structures that um are, are what keep racism and discrimination in place and and those things are hard to change but it's doable i'm going to get deeper into what you do with your specific job and and things related to college athletics in a moment but first i want to go back to what is happening on the ground now and as I said, we, we sort of have transitioned from, you know, protests and rallies to now symbols. And uh, Jack, I want to start with you. And then if we can go around the horn here, uh, we're seeing symbols come down. I mean, a few years ago uh, in South Carolina, it really took a while before that Confederate flag was pulled down from the state capital of Columbia. There was a lot of pressure, obviously, with that before that came down. Now we're dealing with either statues of confederate generals or someone related to the confederacy or someone who was a slave owner uh anything from that era to actually building and people that are really waking up and saying wait a minute what was that person what was that person why is that building name for that person or even military bases which you know i'll just say this it's that actually and i didn't know this until now why certain military bases are named for confederate soldiers who lost? You know, I mean, we don't do that in any other part of the world where we say, okay, we beat you in a war. Now let's go name a base for you. Yeah. I didn't even know that. And, yeah. you, know, you know, I've been around a long time. So <laughs> it was to me that we were naming bases after losers in war. But yeah. that's another topic. Uh, but still, we're talking about changing them. So, Jackie, yeah. what are your thoughts on the symbolism now literally 
coming down and changing, whether it's in public spaces or on college campuses? You know, Andy, that I'm more mad about us walking by statues and thinking that it's okay. So all this stuff that happened with George Floyd is just a, a blow up, right? Finally, people are hearing, listening, because it was visible. But us in the Black community have been watching this for years. But we've also been walking by Confederate flags. I can go 20 miles right here, maybe right around the corner, and see a Confederate flag, and people think that's okay. You know, you take your students to campuses or you drive by to get to a venue and there could be a Confederate flag right down the road or a store right up in Virginia. Like, why is that okay? Like, why is it now that we're tearing down Confederate things or things that just symbolize hate and we're supposed to just accept it? And we have, that's part of the systematic problem, I, I believe, that we've allowed it to happen and yes, there have been people who have tried to push laws to get these things done. The NCAA has done work with the, the Indian mascots and also with the flags in different states. But that's not enough because people who live in these communities that have allowed it to happen were just as wrong. And they need to come down. They should come down. Put them in museums and let people go and pick their choices, whether they want to go to an African-American museum, a history museum, and see it there. But for me to go downtown, and have to look at something that has oppressed me and my people, that's a problem. And it needs to be taken down. I have no empathy. My dad was in the army and he can tell you stories of his own issues. Um, and I'm thankful that he served. And I'm thankful I got to live in other countries and live in California and live in Colorado. But he also had to go to bases and train at those Fort Lee, you know, places in Virginia, places in Texas. It's unacceptable. And like you, Andy, I don't think I ever connected the name of the base to be wrong. Knowledge is power, right? We need to educate ourselves and understand what we're walking by and not be a part of the problem, but be a part of the solution and making that change. And um, I love the question um, because there's symbolism everywhere. Um, but we have to also be mindful of what that symbolism was put there for. Um, in many cases, it was put there as a reminder of, of, you know, our place or our status. Sometimes it was put in place to glorify, um, you know, old values, old points of view. Um, but, you know, the fact that a lot of this is, is changing now is, you know, once again, it's, it's, it's exciting to see that, that people are aware enough that these things need to change for us to not only move our, our society forward, but to move how we view ourselves forward as well. Um, but when we talk about symbolism, we need to also think a little bit deeper, right? So we have these statues, we have these you know, flags, we have these images, but keep in mind that, that part of that symbolism you know, kinda is, is imparted in, in our names as well, right? I guarantee if you were to go to parts of Africa, you would never see somebody with the last name McWilliams or last yeah. name Chip. I'm great, right? thank you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, even that was was handed down as a way of signifying who you belong to or where you came from, right? So all of that symbolism together has an, has an impact. But one thing I, I do want to point out is that, you know, when we have these protests, when we have these um, these periods of activism, something strange tends to happen. And that is that quite often the, the background noise tends to drown out the message, 
And if we're not careful, if we put too much focus on the statues, if we put too much focus on, you know, this, this false argument, well, black people kill black people too. It's a false argument. You know, you, you tend to commit crimes against people who you have the greatest proximity to. White people tend to have more white crime, you know, crime against white people too. All of that goes together, but we get so caught up in the background noise sometimes that we miss the message. Yeah. And the message here is about treatment of African-Americans, treatment by the police, treatment, you know, uh, it's just, you know, the general societal structure and the underlying systems that have been in place, not just for oppression, but, you know, well, anyway, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> because <laughs> this is going to end up being a whole dissertation and a whole, you know, whatever. So I'm going to stop and let it move on and I'll come back to it in a minute. Well, Amy, before I want to get to the, the inclusion uh, that you work with at the NCA, if, if you can here, the decisions that go in at the NCA level, um, when there are, uh, and, and Jackie was mentioning, um, you know, we've had issues with Native American names. Um, there's an issue going on right now, uh, whether it's, um, you know, LGBTQ related in Idaho with rights or in Mississippi with the state flag, which uh, it's great to see actually politicians now backing a potential change on that. But right now, no NCAA championships in the state of Mississippi, South Carolina went through that and that pressure. If you can just pull back the curtain, what have you seen at the NCAA in terms of when those discussions happen of these pockets of or symbols that are offensive and saying, you know what, we do not want to participate by, as Jackie was saying, not just literally walking by, but that's what we're doing if we're there under the umbrella of something that is offensive. Sure, well, I'll start by saying that inclusion is a core value of the NCAA, core value. So if we're gonna state that, we're gonna put it all over our website, then we have to live out that value. And what I've seen, um, you know, in the time I've been at the NCAA for about five years is that um, a lot of these issues are directed by policy, whether you talk about our transgender participation policy or the Confederate flag policy or Native American mascots and those policies are written and voted on by our board of governors, which are the presidents from all three divisions, the presidents and chancellors, um, you know, that, that essentially are the highest body of the NCAA. Um, and and they're, they're, they're moving. I mean, when we got a letter last week, Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern from 31 student athletes, um, a very eloquent letter giving many reasons, there don't need to be many, but they gave many of why they should not have to compete near or under that flag um, our Board of Governors made that decision within 12 hours and changed that policy. So it's a reminder of, of um, how sports can, can lead and be in the front of, of social justice movement. But I think at this moment, we, we are listening to students. We are, we are thinking of ways that, that we can be more inclusive. But it is absolutely the time, if there ever one, was one, that we have to live our values. Yeah, it's unfortunately, sometimes it is that pressure. And we saw mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, certainly with North Carolina. Um, <laughs> this governor and, and, and ultimately there was an election to help you know change uh, that law in that state. Um, there was an issue, if you remember, um, at the Final Four in Indiana years ago, is located uh, on uh, rights, um, you know, LGBT-related rights. And that issue ultimately got pushed um, you know, through in, in the state of Indiana. So let's discuss inclusion. Um, you know, it's great to discuss it. Mm -hmm. 
what are the action? And I'll start with you, Amy, and then I want to go to a conference level and then at a, at a school level. But first at the, at the, at the national level, Amy, um, how do you take what we all want is inclusion and actually make it practical at the ground level? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. So our Office of Inclusion works to facilitate programming, provide education um, on, on core areas of disability, international, LGBTQ, race, ethnicity, and women. So we're supporting the membership in, in all of those areas. Um, I, I think, um, you know, what we're seeing now from student athletes, from administrators, coaches who are reaching out to us is um, they need help now in how to have these discussions and how to move forward. And I'll, I'll say that I, I think what is critical if we're gonna talk about inclusion is that it, it has to be from the top level down. It has to be the leaders and institutions, whether it's the commissioner of a conference or the president of a school or the athletics director of a department. If there isn't buy-in and support for equity, diversity, inclusion at that top level, then it will not cascade down in a way that will, will really, really move forward. So that's critical. Um, I'd also say that um, it's important to understand um, how diversity and inclusion work together. Everyone who's listening to this call is, is part of diverse groups. So your families, your workplaces, everywhere you go, there is diversity. Um, when we get inclusion is when that diversity really matters, when that diversity is prioritized, when that diversity can thrive. So what we have to figure out is how do we recognize all the various identities, core identities that people have, and how do we create spaces where they can reach their full potentials and live that out. And so a couple of action items. I think what's important now is that there are conversations and personal reflections on diversity and inclusion that to be happening before you can start thinking about action items, you have to have a common language to talk about it. You have to be in a room together where you can connect and have that sort of, of dialogue. And I think one of the most important things right now, if you are going to support inclusion, and this week we did a, a webinar I'll talk about in a little bit with student athletes, they need us to listen. So before we run to put in action items and invite a speaker in, or you know, let's do this initiative, let's check a box and say that we did it, we need to listen to what our student athletes need. Um, and, and that may be the very most important thing that we can do right now. Jackie, what, at the, what about at the conference level? Yeah, so we, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I work for historically black colleges and universities and this dialogue is our dialogue every day. You know, I think we're, we bring our students to our campuses and our student athletes to prepare them, you know, to deal with these life challenges and, and to play on the field, but really get them ready to graduate and grow, grow. Our thought process for our presidents are a lot, um, I don't know if it's different. I just know just being at an HBCU and even being a former student athlete, the focus of what, why we bring our kids to our campuses in the first place, to give them the opportunity to learn, to grow, to protest, to create positions for themselves, um, to provide them access, I think is real important. Those things will never change for us. We're already talking about opportunities of education. I heard my presidents talk about the other day, um, we have our own little show and we we're just talking about the importance of educating our students why the foundation of who we are and why they chose our school is important. I love in common ground that inclusion has done, you know, we had a speaker um, at Brigham Young a few years ago and the speaker talked about the ground that we were on before she even started the presentation. She educated us on the institution and the ground that we're on. I think there's a, a, a for me, there's a sense that people don't have enough education and value for history, particularly black history. 
because we've been taught everything else but our own history, right? I've had to learn on my own growing up outside of my family and going to an HBCU, but there's something about understanding the history so that the conversation is not that hard. Knowledge is power, right? There's nothing wrong with talking about race. It doesn't have to be confrontational, even though it feels confrontational. We can talk about every topic ever, but when it comes to race, we step back. And I think in our conference, we're not afraid to talk about it. We're not afraid to engage people in it. And I think we have a due diligence in that as part of educating. So we'll continue to collaborate with our partners, our sponsors. You know, we're doing a, a, um, a partnership with a couple of our partners that have engagement on the inclusion front that do it all, all year, right? They don't have to come out with a statement and mission about what our partner is doing. So we're trying to figure out ways to engage so that the CIAA is visible, our students are invisible. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, we wanna make sure that our students are engaged with the inclusion program, they get involved with that. They have a chance to interact with other people outside of our conference. I mean, that's the other thing. We don't interact and learn about other people in conferences. And I think that's something that we try to encourage our students and our institutions to do to get better, you know, in understanding. So there's a lot of work. The student voice, I think anybody 40 and below needs to be quiet and let these younger people have the <laughs> conversations and tell us what they need and we need to be ready to execute because the 40 and above in my opinion we've been traumatized by all of this these young people are marching they're protesting their voices are heard i couldn't have had a better conversation yesterday amy than those students that were on that panel yesterday to me it changed a lot about how we'll move in our conference and engaging our students a lot different i'll tell you i mean it's crazy when I think back that uh, when you think about the U.S. history that we all were taught, uh, and I, you know, was raised in the '80s, and you know, it basically was all two-dimensional. It wasn't three-dimensional, and you mm -hmm. can still study everyone from our past of three, four hundred years, but tell the whole story. Uh, and it wasn't until I got to college at Wisconsin and took African American studies where actually I learned a much deeper U.S. Yeah. history uh, uh, that. And appreciate the whole picture. Yeah. Uh, you have to take two U.S. history classes, but that's our educational system, which goes a lot deeper. I want to get to the campus level, Ken. Um, we're talking about the student athlete here, the students, the student voice, which has been as empowered as I can remember here in these last this last couple of weeks in, in my lifetime. I mean, we're listening; they're out there speaking, and but they're being empowered to. There's no repercussions if you go out now and speak. That wasn't the case. Uh, on the ground level with the students, why do you think now they're feeling, you know what, I can say what I believe, I can listen, and there's gonna be no problem with me going out and speaking? Well, <laughs> so, so rewind just a little bit. For certain situations and certain programs that have a little bit more visibility, there may not be very many repercussions. But you know, there, there's still possible or potential repercussions depending on the student athlete, depending on the program, depending on the kind of support that they might have within their department or their community. Um, but I will tell you that that you know, with a lot of our, our young athletes, uh, male, female, um, you know, things have been changing over the last few years. You know, things that were once stigmas are not necessarily stigmas anymore. Um, they are accessing things like mental health. They're focusing on empowering themselves. They're focusing on having a voice. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's a thing that happened about maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, or about 15 years ago called social media. And, you know, social media 
and the ability to, to, to take out a phone and to record and say things and to catch things in the moment, all of a sudden gives people a different kind of credibility that they didn't have before. And so, you know, on the individual level, you know, they are more willing to say, you know what, this is not right. This is not just happening to me. This is not right. You know, we, we've been telling our kids, you know, how they should and shouldn't be treated for a while. But when they go to a campus and all of a sudden a coach calls them out of their name or makes a comment that's kind of racially charged, now they're in a position, you know, either through their teammates, through social media, through the counselors, to actually speak up and, and to actually start working through some of these things. Um, the other piece is that what's happening nationally right now has given a, a kind of a certain dynamic to having a voice that wasn't there before. You know, it used to be that, you know, if something happens, let me just kind of keep my head down, look the other way, walk away, because if not, I may lose playing time or I'm not going to be accepted here or, you know, something of that nature. But right now, you know, young adults are, are emboldened. They're seeing changes happening. They're seeing them happening rapidly. You know, this generation is probably the most empowered generation I can ever imagine, right? Yeah. If we think about things like, you know, gay marriage, okay? We think about, you know, the acceptance of, you know, individuals who identify as trans. That didn't start with us. That didn't start with those of us who are over 40, okay? <laughs> That came about because of the voices and the acceptance of young people. And now they are, you know, putting it out there and they're dragging us along with them, gladly dragging us along with them, you know? And so um, let me just add that, you know, I'm, I'm anticipating that you're still gonna hear more things happening on the individual level because you have athletes, you know, who, who may come from different cultures or different backgrounds who go to institutions. And when they get there, those institutions don't have anything in place for them. They don't have, you know, certain types of classes. They don't have, you know, people who may look or act like them. In some cases, you may have to travel an hour just to get your hair cut, just to be able to get the kind of food or, or whatever that it is that's comfortable for you, right? And the reality is that's not really acceptable. And they're finally speaking up and saying that they're gonna, that, you know, that it's not acceptable and they're gonna hold us accountable for making sure that things get to where they're supposed to be. And so, you know, that's, like I said, it's, it's a very powerful thing. Yeah, there's no question the phone has become as powerful an instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe I'm romanticizing it, but um, I think we have crossed a line. Incredibly difficult to go backwards. Uh, I think the power is now in the student athlete. There's no question about it. And I've said this for years, and I will say it for years to come. As a coach, if you're listening out there, you know you can be demanding. But the days of ever being demeaning are over. Uh, I mean, there's a line. Demanding, not demeaning. And I think that era of a coach, you're not a coach anymore. It is over. All right, so I want to end with, with this topic, which is the tangible aspect. The change is there. Now we've got all these things emerging in the fall. COVID-19 not going away, at least in the fall, we hope. By Christmas, but we don't know. Uh, hoping for a vaccine, but it's going to be out there. And you know, somehow the mask has become political, and all that aspect has become political. We got that out there. And COVID nineteen, by the way, dramatically affecting the Black and Brown communities more. Uh, and then you've got 
student athletes, students are going to be empowered when they get on campus. I mean, all these rallies and protests happened without college campuses being in session. Yeah. And we know the history in this country of college campuses. So just imagine when they all get together in the fall, at the same time you're dealing with trying to social distance and masks. So I'm going to start with Amy, but I want to end with Jackie. I'll go with you, Ken, in the middle here. What do you think will happen, Amy, in terms of something tangible that we're going to see in the fall, into the winter, when everyone gets back together? Yeah, well, you just you just named a lot of unpredictables. I don't know if we've ever had a time in higher <laughs> education um, of just such instability and, and frankly, just worry. And so um, I think what, what our office is trying to do is to help coaches, administrators, and students to get as ready as they can and to meet their needs in terms of diversity inclusion. Um, we have an annual event called the annual, uh, Inclusion Forum that happens every April. And so when we couldn't have that for COVID, what we're doing all summer are a series of webinars in our core areas. And so we did one on our Common Ground Initiative in early June. Um, and this week we had uh, a series on community of communities of belonging through a racial justice lens where we featured student athlete voices and had a session on anti-racism. To come in the next few weeks are ones for international students, uh, women, um, and also disability looking at mental health. So, we're going to try to engage and provide programming resources in every way that we can um, to help administrators and coaches be prepared. But I, I think the, the priority has to be how do we keep people safe and um, how do we try as, as much as we can not to disrupt the lives of these young people. I, I can only imagine what it's like right now to be a traditional college age student and thinking about your education and your extracurriculars and what your future looks like. But um, we're working on a resource on student athlete expression. And, and activism, hoping that will help those who teach and lead our students to better guide them. So we're doing all we can to help foster those conversations and listening, I said, and hoping we can get folks ready to be good teachers and leaders of their student athletes in the fall. Ken? Um, so you did mention that I'm a psychologist, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so let me just say that from my perspective, um, I think that we are going to have an unprecedented wave of mental health issues this fall. Um, for the last probably 15, 16 years, anxiety has been the number one issue seen at most college campuses. Well, between COVID and the protests and, you know, the things happening nationally around race, you know, students, after being cooped up for so long, you know, after coming out and when they stepped out they didn't step out into a normal world they stepped out into the trauma of what they were seeing because of george floyd right and so when they, as they get back onto college campuses you know anxiety is going to be heightened some of them are going to be you know dealing with some type of secondary or vicarious trauma from the things that they've seen or things that they've experienced um you're gonna you know i wouldn't be surprised if there was an increased rate of, of depression um you know, when you've been separated or isolated from your friends or your social groups for an extended period of time, it's going to feel kind of awkward to be around those people again. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's some strain or tension in some of those relationships or if people have moved on to others that they think are, are better fit and relationships are lost, right? So I'm anticipating that from a mental health, a mental health standpoint, we're going to see um, a, huge, a huge wave. The other part of that is that for student athletes, Keep in mind that for many of them, a big part of their identities have been tied up into performance um, and who they have been, you know, and in the sports or athletic realm from the time that they were young, right? For, you know, 
this was not a net natural transition out of sport. It was stopped. It, it, was, it wasn't like a pause. It was like, hey, this is, this is over for now, right? And so coming back into it, it's going to be a bit of an adjustment. Some people are going to come back in, you know, excited and, and ready to go. And there's going to be others who've been out of it for a little bit of time who are going to be like, I, it felt great being a normal person. I don't really want to do this anymore. And so they're going to be dealing with the pressures of kind of stepping back into that performative role and that kind of social status of who I am as an athlete versus just wanting to be a normal human being. And so for me, for me, I think that the mental health piece is going to be big. And then finding a way to carry their voices forward is going to be big as well. Because when you step onto that campus, you know, what are you going to do? You know, it's going to, they have to kind of navigate that now. Yeah, I agree with both Ken and Amy on this. Um, so as they were talking, I was just thinking, you always, I was a psychology major, Ken, so <laughs> I have a deep-rooted part about people. Um, but I start thinking about the social, the mental, the physical, the intellectual well-being of dealing with all these things and trying to transition our students back on their campuses. Um, I do believe that our presidents, and like Amy said, it starts at leadership. You know, how you bring those students back how you get them acclimated back to your campus and the things that you drive for them, you know, in their social, mental, physical, intellectual well-being will be critical. And that's for coaches too. I mean, coaches, this is what we do. We work in college athletics. So for me to think about not having a football or volleyball championship does not feel well. So I don't think about it. I just think about how we're going to be able to go and COVID, whether, whether she or he stops us or not, we'll have to be prepared for that. But either way, I think we all have to think about how we're gonna take care of ourselves and take care of the people around us so that we'll be better you know, when we get on the other side of this. The other thing is, this is a voting year. We don't have any time to waste and play. So the whole intellectual academic side of getting our kids ready to get on the field is even more, uh, more important to get them prepared to vote locally, nationally, regionally, so that we can have change um, in, in our states, but even in our governance structure. So there's work to do, but I, I do believe as leaders, we have to be mindful of our priorities, why we're in this in the first place, and make sure that we take care of the safety of the well-being for everybody that's around us and be okay, whatever that decision is, Andy. We gotta be okay. So whether we go or we stop, you got to be okay with that because it's really not about us. We're talking about human life and humanity right now in all, all forms of life here. You know, social justice, COVID-19, community surviving, athletic surviving, and I think we're all going to have to stand up and be ready to manage whatever the decisions are um, for the betterment of these students who need us. They need us. And actually, I need them probably more than they even know because <laughs> I'm at 40 and above, right? <laughs> I need the lessons from them to know how to carry on. And I'm just really proud of the resiliency that they have shown, um, much better than some of us have shown. And, they, and, we, and we owe it to them to make sure that we put them in environments where they can thrive. Yeah, just two quick points to, to wrap up what you were all saying that, um, first of all, it's great that uh, the NCAA has encouraged in conferences and schools uh, for November 3rd to be a day off of competition, whether it's practice or uh, games. Um, so that people can be engaged, not just vote, because a lot of people are gonna have to vote absentee, obviously, but be engaged in the process on that particular day. And what we've learned more than anything over the last month is how important local elections are. I think we get tied up in the federal aspect of all this presidential year. We're seeing what happens at the local 
yeah. leaders and governors and attorney generals and ju yeah. judicial, you know, um, um, elections matter. Um, obviously, we're seeing that at the local level, so that's critical on November third. And then, to your point, uh, Dr. Chu, on the mental health aspect, I mean, as 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 a father who's got a daughter going off to school in the fall, mm -hmm. like I worry about also. You know, at one point, someone's going to test positive. We're seeing that already with athletes right now. And so you're going to have to go into like a COVID dorm and, and you know, be quarantined for two weeks. Uh, and what that's going to do from that mental health aspect of being separated from your friend group, from your classes, even if you can still connect online. Uh, and that's why, Amy, allies are really critical in all facets of what our you know, student athletes and students are going to experience in the fall. Look, this is an ongoing conversation. Uh, I really appreciate all three of you joining me, and I know we're going to continue to engage in this over the summer, into the fall, into the year. Our NCAA social series has been a big hit. I'd like to think so. We've had great uh, So Amy Wilson, NCAA mm -hmm. Director of Inclusion. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Chu, uh, a psychologist. Uh, <laughs> and Jackie McWilliams, the CIAA Commissioner. I appreciate all your time most importantly stay safe and everyone can go to our ncw.org slash social series to see all our content it's archived right there for you stay safe everyone appreciate it